So if you have a Bible with you or turn your Bible on to chapter 15 of the book of Luke, it says Luke 15, we're going to be walking into uh, a parable, um, which if you were read this chapter in its, in its wholeness, you would recognize that there, this is one of three parables that are being spoken of. Jesus talks in parables for a couple reasons. Uh, one would be um, that he wants you to see yourself in a way you wouldn't see yourself. So actually, uh, if, you, if you notice in Matthew 11, 12, Jesus takes a, a, a turn. Some, the Pharisees are yelling at Jesus, you know, who's this guy here? He heals in the name of Beelzebub. And, and Jesus says, you know, um, from that moment on, he didn't take his message to the streets as much as he, um, uh, he took his message to deepen believers. And then when he spoke to believers for their protection, he would speak in a parable. So they understood him and mothers didn't. Classic example, when he said, Build, tear the, down this temple, the analogy in three days, and it'll be rebuilt. They actually used that against him in a court when they were, when they were persecuting Jesus to say, he was actually going to tear down the temple. And then they laughed to say, you know, the, odd, the oddity that he would build it back up in three days. And Jesus was speaking, obviously figuratively in that sense about himself. And so here... Jesus is about to speak in a parable. He's about to do so, so the people who are around him get it, uh, but it's also so it stretches your mind. It, it gives you an understanding of this is what, um, this is what I'm supposed to grasp. Because let me, say, let me give you an example. Those of you who are a parent, whenever you deal with a wayward child, here's what happens. When you begin to speak to them about something, <clears throat> there is a defensive mechanism that comes in into play and begins hearing things in a way to respond to defend themselves. But when you give it to somebody in an illustration as a parable, they see the situation, not themselves. Kind of opens their mind a little bit. So Jesus is speaking in parables for a couple of reasons. But in this particular case, case, he's going to tell a parable that is going to have this little Jewish audience on edge. Contextually, you and I cannot, cannot quite grasp the, uh, the things that are, he's going to speak of here that would draw literal shocks and sounds of awe from a crowd just on uh, the semantics of this story, just on some of the uses of, of words and verbiage, people are going to be shocked. And so I'll walk you through some of that as they're reacting, but this parable is being told also for a guy like me to be able to have fun with it. Because when you preach scripture, you have to preach it as it's written. You know, I mean, if I'm walking with you through um, Levitical law, which I wonder, I, I seriously doubt we'll ever do a Sunday, you know, year-long series on, on Leviticus, unless we're really trying to shrink our populace in a building. Because, well, you know, that was written for a reason, to build a Levitical base for the church, to be everything, you know, the historicity the, of, of Scripture, the poetry of Scripture, all Scripture is living and breathing, and you can, you can expound on it. But you have to let people know very clearly, I'm expounding, I'm using my commentary, I'm, but if what it's written for, it's written for. A parable is written for us. It's written for us to be able to grasp a lot of the beauty of, of, of God's, uh, God's plan. So um, I think about this too. You and I recognize that all of us in here have the ability, every one of us, to do things on our own accord and our own strength. 
And that can be a dangerous, dangerous place. Some of the most danger I've ever encountered, not to say danger, but dangerous thing I did as a minister was preach on my own strength. You know, like times get busy, you look at your schedule. I used to, at the college uh, ministry called The Tree, I used to have this, um, sometimes weeks would go by when, I mean, I was just so slammed and I could justify it. You know what, I, I'm, gonna, I'm just gonna be able to go off what God's given me. I would justify it like, well, you know, a plumber shows up, he doesn't have to read an instruction manual every time he fixes your plumbing. I mean, surely God's made me who I am and there's a degree of that, that you, after you study long enough, you should be able to know what you're talking about to a degree. Well, I would show up and I'd preach on my own accord and my own strength. And it would show what was received out there. It would show, and then there would come a conviction of like, this is not a Bible study. You know, this is not, I mean, this is not a book study. This is a corporate driven worship opportunity for us to feel the power of the Holy Spirit moving in us and if that, if that means I'm up here speaking without dependency on the Holy Spirit, you know, I'm not bringing in everything I need to bring in, which is an availability of the Holy Spirit. And then there are times, let me flip side the coin of that. I can think of one particular day. It was one day I am telling you, I dedicated that day to prep, to get ready for Tuesday night. Actually, it was a Wednesday night. We used to meet at nine o'clock. Do you remember that, John? How did that happen? According to nine o'clock on a Wednesday night, I wouldn't start speaking till almost 10 o'clock. Then we'd go out to eat. We did it, you know, and I remember the day was going. Hundreds of college students were going to be there and I could not get a block of time to prepare anything. But I had this crazy sense of peace that God was saying, keep doing what you're doing and I'll, be, I'll meet you there tonight. I just had this resounding peace. Well, I got there. And sure enough, when, folks, when I tell you, and I'm not saying this for a braggart standpoint, I'm saying this because there was, I was stymied. There was a wall. I couldn't see anything. I had no idea what I was going to preach till the moment I got up there and opened up my Bible. I opened up the Bible and literally looked at it. And for 45 minutes, I mean, the things that came out, the things that were said. And I'm, I've tried replicating that night. I've tried saying, God, can you just let me feel that night? It was incredible. And the people, I mean, there were people who got saved. There were people whose lives were impacted. So it doesn't matter about what we bring to the table as much as what, how much we bring of him to the table. But if we come to it expecting him to just continually pay our bill all the time, well, that's going to, um, there's going to be problems. So here I am about to preach a parable. And in, you know, in the next few weeks, we're going to be preaching some different things that the Lord lays on our heart. I didn't know where I was preaching till two, three days ago when this hit. And, um, and so I'm going to walk you through this. If you've grown up in church, there is a tendency, there is a tendency for you to do something to go, I've heard the story about the prodigal son, and I'm going to just check out. I mean, a guy messes up, crawls back, begs for food, dad kisses him, the other brother comes out, kind of ticked off, end of story. No. It's deeper than that. It's richer than that. And how about this? Here's another misconception. When you've heard a story as much as you've heard it, especially when it comes to a parable, you begin to think this is for 
the other person in a room. This is for you. This message is for you. It's for me. We all say that in our minds collectively. This message is for me. Jesus is about to open up. Let me pray. Jesus, please speak through me so that each one receives this message that you would have. Please, in Christ's name, amen. Verse 1. I'm sorry, verse 11. And he said, There is a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. And so uh, if you're, by the way, before we start, you go back to verse 11, but before we start going off on, on all these verses, um, understand there's a man who had two sons. One is older than the other. Um, the older son, if you think about an inheritance, you would think what? It would be split down the middle. An older son would have actually received two thirds of the inheritance. The younger son would have received a third. So this younger son, verse 12 again, um, it says here, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Now, it was not unusual for a son to go to the father to say, I want my share. Probably wouldn't say it in that context, but would basically say, I need my share. I'm going to be moving. Let's say this individual was, which was highly unlikely uh, because of the time most people didn't move. Remember, Jesus only went within, you know, Day, I think a two or three day walking journey of his entire life in this particular region, you know. So um, men would not have just packed their families up and moved. You wouldn't have understood the village you were going into. You would have understood the culture you're walking to. You would probably have died of a childhood disease that you never had, that they had, that you're immune to. So you just didn't do it. But it did happen. But here's what's interesting. The father wouldn't just go to the bank and say, well, I need, I need one third of my money to give my youngest son. He would have to go sell his goats, sell his sheep, sell cattle, sell what belongings he had to give him this money. This was, a, this was kind of an ordeal to, to begin with. And so he divides the property, gives the younger son this money, this money in verse 13. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. <clears throat> so I, I preach out of ESV. Um, we, well, we have NIV in here, New King James Version. Um, some of you have the death grip on your KJV, I know. Uh, in, uh, uh, NASB, you have that. Any of your versions out there read um, uh, a distant land. Some of yours have distant land. What is a distant land and what is a far country? The reality is, geographically, he's going to a far country. The reality is you and I have an ability to understand this. You and I have the ability, if we're not careful, to fall into a distant land and a distant country. What is a distant country to you and I in 2019? It is any place, figuratively speaking, emotional, spiritual, or physically, that is removed from dependency on God. It is you living in an independence from God. That is a place of a distant land. That's a distant land where you just removed yourself. And so all of us in here understand what it's like to be in a distant land. I can guarantee you, every one of you have been in that place before or you're in it now. I'm not even gonna venture to say, if you've never been in it, not in it, you're gonna go into it. No, you 
would be lying to me. You'd be lying to God. You'd be lying to yourself if you've never said, I've been in a distant country. I've been in a land that has seemed so far removed from the power and the love of God and the love of even who I am. That area and that distant land can come in an area of depression. It can come in the, in, the, in, the, in the world of loneliness, of isolation, of fear, of unfairness, of aging, of dying, of it, whatever place. If it's a hospital bed or under hospice or a doctor cannot figure out what's going on, that distant land is where you feel separated, where you feel disconnected and disjointed. Sometimes you go there on your own and sometimes you are put there by other people. Verse 14, and when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. When we look at these verses and you think about, obviously a Jewish crowd is listening to this. The Jewish crowd has just reacted to think, he really demanded his father's estate. He took off with his money. He's abandoned his dad, the role he has in his dad. See, here's what would happen. The dad and the son, when you were married, would build on an addition to the home. And you would come home with your wife. You would build that home. And then in due time, the father would be taken care of by the son in the room that was built by he and his father. And so there's a, wait a minute, you're going to leave and abandon your dad. You're going to take a third of his money. You're going to go off and you're going to disappear. And I mean, if anything, they are sitting on the edge of their seat. They are falling off the tree stumps when they hear he's doing what with pigs? You don't even get around a pig as a, as a, as a Jew. You wouldn't get around anything that would do with pork you wouldn't certainly, you certainly would not lie in their, in their bed. You certainly would not eat the pods. The pods were so full of filler that it was so rich that you would get physically ill if you ate too many. Only pigs in their digestive systems could handle those kind of, those, those kind of, those kind of pods. And so they would, he's eating these pods, getting ill, thinking of home, and he's, he's sitting there thinking he's longing to be fed with just the pods that they ate. He couldn't even get any of those. Why? Go back to verse 14. Don't lose this. These two words in verse 14, a severe famine arose in that country. You and I are protected. You and I really, when we talk about what a severe drought, that's a big deal. Oh, there's a big drought coming on and, you know, it hasn't rained in March, hasn't rained in April. And we start to experience a drought and we start to see there's some occasional forest fires that go on. But when you get into a severe drought, like South Africa had last year, where people were being told you could only shower one day a week, they closed um, car washes down. You were you you could not. I mean, water was 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 just treasured. Now they're out of the drought. The rainy season kicked back in, and the country of South Africa has forgot what a drought is. People are watering their cars again. People, when you go through a severe famine. In the Bible, in which the only other time it mentions severe famine was in the Old Testament, and the vernacular was used. You ready for this? It described in the Old Testament women debating cooking their children to feed their other family. That is to the degree of a severe famine. Understand that when people heard this, they knew what Jesus was talking about. That this was a famine that would do something and wreck lives. It would wreck all their sense of normalcy. This famine 
is being lived under by everyone. And so people are thinking, well, there's no wonder he's, he's eating pig feed. And no wonder he's not allowed to eat any pig feed anymore. The entire crowd is drawn in by the storytelling abilities of who Jesus is. Verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I should perish here with hunger. Okay, this is another verse or another version that some of your Bibles say this. And I love this verse. I've said it to a few of you who've had issues maybe with some family member. I said, here's the prayer. Some of you, your, your scripture reads, when he came to his senses. Sometimes when someone's gone astray, someone's so far out in, in, in the, another land, when they're so far away and so far removed, here's the best prayer you could ever pray. Lord, let them bring, bring them to their senses. Bring them to an understanding of what life should be. But see, people stop running from God when they're faced with this. You ready? Difficult circumstances, difficult circumstances make people stop running from God or this deserved consequences. When you are in deserved consequences or difficult circumstances, you just immediately turn to God. How does that happen? How does that happen? It's easy. Well, it's, you stop running from God when this, when all of a sudden the divorce hits and you think I have nowhere to turn. When all of a sudden you're at a place where everybody knows my secret and you have nothing to lose. You turn to God when all of a sudden it seems like there is no more armor, no more facade, no more plastic uh, that you could, you could hide yourself behind. And you simply say, God, I need to come home. I need to come back to who you are. You, this is the authentic you. This is the realest you will ever be because human nature will do something to you and sinful nature will do this. You are going to return back to who you were if you're not careful. You just will. Human nature knows a sense of comfort to want to come home. And oftentimes I look at this and I, and I think, what have I done in the past that I, I've forgotten what I once had? So it doesn't matter what church you've come from. A lot of you grown up in, in town at different churches and you went through what we're going through. You're building a building. If you're not careful, I'm the guiltiest one of all. Put a bullseye right here. I was the guy that used to always think the land of milk and honey was when we moved in the next building. I couldn't wait. I mean, this is, gonna, this is going to solve everything. We move in that building and it's going to be so precious. Then you know what happens when you get in the building? You know, man, I miss that place. I miss, maybe not the building, but you miss what you had. I remember we had a building at church I used to go to that was just, I mean, we had to get on buses and parking lots and you had to take a bus to this, this school and you had to go over here. And people were, I mean, you're on, it's a Sunday morning. All ages are going up and down on buses. You would stop, you'd get outside. It was like Grand Central Station. It was packed. It was incredible. And all of us the whole time going, can't wait for to get in the next building. Can't wait to get there. And then we got there and it was like, we look back like, where, what, what do we do? I'm telling you, this guy right here, I'm the one. I was one of the ones pushing. We're going to do it. This is going to be great. I, you talk to I talked to, I was on a cruise one time and this guy was, um, he was laden with like medals, military medals on his tuxedo. 
British guy. I walked up to him. I was asking him some of the questions. I was like, um, you were in the Royal Navy. He said, oh, yes, yes, I was in the Royal Navy. And he was an older gentleman. And I was like, you know, tell me, what, what kind of ships have you served on? Oh, well, you know, I was on this one. I was on that one. My father, my grandfather were in the Navy. And I just got in a conversation asking, where, what was the most exciting thing you see? And I'm thinking he's going to tell me something of war, wartime experience. He said, I think when I was 16, I was learning to sail. And his eyes glistened and glimmered. He was describing a boat that was 12 feet long. I mean, a lifeboat on these other ships he was on was bigger than this. But there was something about the dependency on every skill he had in the fear of not knowing what was ahead that brought a thrill and a rush to him. So what happens is you and I find ourselves in a distant country oftentimes when we are tired. When we've lived the same sense of daily monotony, our mind doesn't take us to the far distant country we think is out there. It takes us to one and we never know it. A far distant country, what is that? Oh, that's the person living out in squalor. That's the person who was clubbing it up in Ebor last night who can't get up without a hangover today. There's no way. That's the squ- No, ours is different. I have, a, I have somebody whose grandson is in jail and he calls me every week and a half. And I mean, you would think this kid is a, <clears throat> has a master's in divinity, speaks of scripture, speaks of what God's doing, reading incredible stuff. Now keep in mind, in the back of my mind, what am I dealing with? What am I reckoning with? Oh, this is jailhouse conversion. I mean, man, I, I hope he does make it. I mean, I hope he comes to this in a strong way. I hope everything's going to be okay. But deep down in my mind, you know what I'm thinking? No, it's just he'll come in here with a shiny Bible. When he gets out, he'll sit in the front row. And after about a month or two, because the circumstances have changed, the consequences are no longer there. He might not be there. But you see, who's more in a distant country? He or I? That I am so distant from God and my logic and reasoning to think God can't sustain someone like that. If I'm not careful, I am the person who is more in a distant land than he is. So the reality is every one of us, because of hurts and pains and experiences, remember, of consequences or circumstances, we have been taken to a land that is distant from who God is. Okay, so he has a realization, a wake up, I'm going to have to go back. Look at verse 18. He is preparing a speech of speeches. These two verses, watch, here it is. I'm going to rise, I'm going to rise, I'm going to go to my father. And I'm going to say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So he is preparing a speech. I don't know if you've ever prepared a speech like I prepare, like you're running late to work and you're thinking, I know what they're going to say. And you're preparing the speech. You are, I mean, you are Maximus whatever, gladiator, for you were about to give the speech of speeches on the arena when you get there to say, how dare you question me? Or whenever you've been right and whenever you've been perfect and you're about to deal with someone and you can't wait, I mean, the speech is coming. This is the speech he is preparing, but he's a hypocrite. 
do you see this? I'm no longer to be worthy to be called your son. That sounds really humble, doesn't it? But it's a fake. Because why? He's approaching his dad as his son. He's approaching his dad as his son, knowing that bond cannot be broken. That's what you do when you're in a distant country. You start to validate things. You deny things. There's denial. There's validation. There's Denial is just, it's, it's what you and I, we don't know what we're denying until somebody else points it out. Sometimes it's God that points it out. Otherwise, what do we do? We continue denying. There's a series, um, I watched, it was, a, it was a station that was uncovering the filth of hotel rooms with an ultraviolet light. And, and, and I mean, they were showing stuff like, no, this is awful. Well, they go to this couple who's in a, who's in a lobby of a hotel, sweet couple on their anniversary. And they said, you know, you're checking in, or, you know, you've been in your room. You, you know, oh yeah, yeah, the, room, the maid is cleaning the room. We're, you're going to go back because you know, the maid was still clean. Um, may we have permission to go with you to see the condition of your room? And a sweet, innocent couple is like, oh yeah, sure. And I'm sitting here yelling, don't do it. Are you crazy? You know, and so they, they get up to the room. You know, sweet couple, they're talking on their way up about shows they've seen and like, oh, you know, I can't wait to go to this restaurant. And you're just, I mean, you're tearing your sackcloth. You're like, no, you have no idea. And so they turn off the lights, hit that thing, boom, stains everywhere. The woman goes, shrieks and says, turn the lights back on. And she, the, the, she turns it on. She goes, I don't want to see it. And I'm like, you just saw it. And she is in denial going, I just don't want to know it's there. Now we laugh at that, but guess what? Have one of us taken an ultraviolet light to a hotel room? No, we'd much rather live in the realm of denial. I don't want to know what's in there. I went to Vietnam in 2000, just before they converted from bicycles to mopeds. Fascinating. We arrived at one o'clock in the morning. Why is it is fascinating? I'll tell you, why is that so funny? I'm getting somewhere with this, Cameron. Um, I get there and uh, it was late at night. The streets are empty. I wake up next morning. We get out. Our van picks us up. We drive out in the road, six lane road. No noise except bicycle parts. Everybody's on bicycles, white shirt, black pants, straw pointy hat, and everybody melting in traffic. I am sitting next to the van driver, jaw dropped. Cannot believe what I'm watching. And then it hits me. It looks like an artery being, arteries feeding into this main artery. And no one was looking as they were merging. They just kept flying in it. And you probably saw this as well, Colin. And I'm sitting there thinking, how do they, what, what, how, how are they doing this? What kind of a, I could not understand. There wasn't a lane they were going to, they just merged. And the van driver said, oh, we Vietnamese have a belief that what you do not see will not hurt you. <laughs> like, you gotta be kidding me. Said so, no, we just ignore it. We just stay focused, and what we don't see won't hurt us. And the reality is, if we're not careful, we can exist as a church and as body believers, and as a believer, what we see, we do not see will not hurt us. And so we find ourselves in a distant country. Had a young man come over to the house there at night, and he he uh, started sharing some things uh, just about some stuff in his life. And I'm really proud of this young guy. I mean, this guy is, you know, when I met him, 
had not a lot. I mean, his dad, not a relationship with his dad. His mom was a prostitute. He didn't have any money, and then he built himself a fund of money, and then he built himself credit, and he bought it. I mean, I've just been really proud of him. Never really fit in to the, you know, um, with the crowd he hung around in the, the college group at church, and, you know, but it was kind of just always had an edge to him. And he was talking. He was in a low spot. And here's what he said. He said, you know what? I am just... Most hypocritical people I've met are Christians, and I don't think I don't I don't think Christ is real. I think it's fake. I think he just. It, you know what I did? Nothing. He just listened, and I just listened to him. He's spewing. He's just spewing. And I mean, I baptized him. I've seen him. I mean, he he worked for a church actually at one time. He gets done, and I'm thinking, man, I've got nothing to say. And we went on to say some other things. And just before he got up, you know what he said? He says, you know, at the end of the day, all things I've said, I know he's still there. And I know he's in charge. That may have been the most honest, lamenting prayer I have heard in a year. Can you imagine if you and I approached each other in an accountability group? Like, you want to break up a little picnic small group? Come in here with that. I think all of you are fake. I think God's not real. I think Christ is, no, there's no, I mean, you are going, if you're not careful, there's going to be retorts and rebukes and and responses of, oh, well, you know, give this a try and go home and read Purpose Driven Life or some, and we're going to say these things that just don't move. Sometimes just listen and let people lament. I remember when I went to the world of counseling that opened my eyes and I remember walking in one day thinking, I don't need to be here. I haven't read scripture. I haven't prayed. I just feel jacked up in the head. And I remember him looking at me saying, I'm so glad you're here and didn't clean yourself up before you walked in this door. And it was the first time I had felt a sense of relief that I could be me. So I... My, my counselor said, he said, you know, and I think I've shared this with you before. He said, how, how long do you think the Bible's been in? He said, you've learned this. So you took seminary. What, how long has the Bible been in the hands of people? I was like, effectively, American Bible Society, just after the Civil, the Civil War, kind of put the book of Psalms and the hymnal in everybody's haversack, and they went home, and they had a family Bible. And then in the 1920s, people started getting, you notice, if you get any Bible prior to 1920s or 30s, um, they're gigantic, right? They're huge family Bible. Like, here's your family. You know, this is what you read to your family and your family. So people didn't have that. And people couldn't read. So this 2,000-year journey we've been on in Christ, we've had the Bible effectively in our hands for less than 100 years. How did we exist? Oh, he'd asked me that question. I said, well, I mean, we, we gathered together. Corporately, we worshiped prayed, sang songs, heard people preach and tell stories and, and pull it in. But there was also this, and I'd forgotten. We lamented. There's an entire book of the Bible called Lamentations, where people would not be in sin, but would be in worship when they would go to God and just cry out and say, God, would you fix this? Would you fix this problem? God, I'm miserable. And it was that kind of honesty. We've lost that to a degree. And so what happens is we gather together, and I'm not talking about just Creekside. I'm talking about gather up all our churches. If we're not careful, we 
gather up to talk about a church that needs to be built for people in a distant land, yet who all of us are distantly living in a land so far disconnected from the reality of Christ. We look at someone's sin, we look at someone's mistake, we look at someone's past, what do we do? We attach them with having disappointed us and having disappointed our father. And so what happens is we begin to look at someone and say, you know what? Divorced. You know what that divorced person happened? Because of that divorce, something happened in the agony they went through. They came back to God in a way that's going to teach us the lesson. But we in our distant land will not hear from it. Somebody has a lifestyle issue. Somebody has a depression issue. There's always a person that kind of takes extra grace to talk to. They are trying to walk out of distant lands, coming to people who are residing in a distant land right now. That could be us. That very well could be you and I. So he prepares a speech, verse 20. And he rose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion, ran and embraced him and kissed him. And his son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. Here's a speech in, in totality, exactly what he said. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. So, Remember I told you about the Jews having probably a lot of shock and awe listening to the story? Go back to verse 20. You want to see him fall off their stump? It's this one right here. He says he is giving a picture of his father, a Jewish father. Keep in mind, for people to be hearing a story, a good bit of that crowd is not hearing that Jesus is giving an illustration of he is the father. They're just thinking of some father, a fleshly man like you and I. He says, but while the son was a long way off, his father in these four areas describe a God that is kind of inconceivable to logic and reason. He saw him, which meant he was looking for him. He felt compassion on him, not anger. The Bible, by the way, has been, is very clear about expressing emotion or passion. It does not hide that. He ran, which again, those of you who grew up in a culture of understanding religiosity would have meant he would have picked up the garment or the hem of his garment, raised it above his pale knees and taken off running, humiliated. This is the part where people are going, what? He did what? How could he, how could he possibly do this? Keep in mind, medical personnel overseas in countries like this are trained to wrap someone even while giving medical attention to hide their, their, their knees and their ankles to this day. So they're hearing like, oh, he's exposed. What's he doing? He ran and he embraced him and then he kissed him. All the reactions he did not think were possible happened. So every one of us think and imagine this is how God is going to reply. Here's what happens every day with you and I. You have to come to a realization that God does not see you the way you see you. He doesn't. 
when you begin to think that God is going to react in anger, or he's a God that smirks, or he's a God that somehow says, you deserve that, or he's a God that looks at you and says, what took you so long? You're studying the wrong God of this scripture. Because that is not an accurate portrayal. It says actually that there is a celebration when someone returns to him. It is said in the Old Testament that God, you ready for this? He shouts in joy when you come home to him. God is that big. He's that loving. He's that kind. He makes what someone would say a fool of himself going after you to bring you back in. Remember the thief on the cross? The thief on the cross looks over to Jesus at the last moment, has a wake-up call at the last possible moment to say, God, would you please forgive me? A wake-up call comes at any different time. But what's interesting is this. When you come to him, when you're unhindered from religion, when you're unhindered from yourself, when you're unhindered from what others think of you, you truly do see he sees you differently than you saw yourself. You think the story would end right here, right here to be a perfect place. It's done. Okay, culturally, wow, Jesus, I can't believe you told us that story. But then the other brother comes into the scene, verse 25. Now his older son was in the field. And he, as he came, he drew near to the house He heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother's come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But he was angry, and he refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you. I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me even a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who's devoured your property with prostitutes, you kill the fattened calf for him. He has every right in my book to say this thing. Where was he when the guy came back, his younger brother? He's working. Did he ask for two-thirds of his dad's money as the older son? No. Did he loyally stick to his dad's side? Yes. Quite frankly, if you were to put us in a room with these two brothers, who would you associate with? Who would you hire to work for you? Who would you want your daughter to date? Who would you want to be around? We would be around the one that worked hard. We'd be around the one that, that, that showed this is what it means to, to be loyal. But you see, if we're not careful, we're going to miss the fact that it's brothers like this that send other brothers to distant countries all day long because of legalism and expectations and hard rules. It's people that say, you don't measure up. You don't look right. You don't talk right. You don't sound right. You don't act right. You don't live right. You need to go. And we may not verbally say that, but we do it with our emotions. 
You want to check in the spirit? Who do you go to lunch with today? We're all guilty. For everyone that ever comes up and says, no one invites me to lunch, I look at them and say, you know what? They're in sin, so are you, because you haven't invited one soul to lunch. See, nobody likes personal conviction. We like it when it falls on someone else. But this young man rolls up, pompous, absolutely right. Dad, how could you let this happen? How could you... How could you lack the foresight to do it, to allow this to go on, to bring him back in, to give him the stuff? You killed a calf. You know, long t- you know you, we have to eat the whole thing now. Where's your ring? Where is your, you gave it to him? That's for me. I'm the oldest son. What are you thinking? So all of a sudden, the, the mind begins to, Take us to a place of what's ours. When you forget what you had, you're in a dangerous place. You see what happens when someone leaves someone or leave their family or leave their church. Here it is. You ready for this? Everyone's entitled. Entitled. Somebody else got this. I didn't get this. You know what happens? You forget where you've been. You forget what you've had. You forget the journey you've been on. And you feel like you're totally right. How does a dad reply? And he said to him, verse 31, Son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and he's found. God breaks all the rules when it comes to bringing you back. He did something else. Ariel, our birthday girl, by the way, Ariel, um, today, if you would go back to, uh, <laughs> and Tyler's birthday yesterday, so we could go on. But anyway, um, so if you go back to verse 28, um, 28, because I, I caught this in the last service and I had you highlight it. You want to see something where if anybody ever comes to you and says, hey, how's, how's a Christian God different than a Buddhist God, different than a Muslim God? How is that different? And we all follow the same God. Every text ever written on any other God figure would never, has never said something like this. This is not a profound life verse. This is not something that's going to shake the foundation of theology, but I think it's pretty cool. His father, remember, Jesus is given a parable. The father in the picture represents God, right? Everybody with me on that one? What is that father doing? Entreating him. He was angry, refused to go, and the older brother, his father came out. Ready for this? A picture of God. How does, how does Jesus explain God? Here it is. He begged his son to come in. Has that resonated with you yet? Like it's a hard time resonating with me? Tinsley, can you imagine that God is begging you, begging you to come in to a place of realization of communion with him to say, please, Tinsley, even 
when you're at a place of saying, I want nothing else to do with you. He doesn't come in damning you, condemning you, crushing you. He comes in to say, I beg you to come in with me. This is a God much, I mean, for what I go to, I go back to say, you and I can't see God the way he sees himself, the way he sees us. We can't see ourselves the way he sees us. We cannot picture God and all his love and all his facets. Sometimes it's best just to simply stand before him and say, God, be God for a moment. Well, that verse says, be still and not know that I'm God. We always put the emphasis on stillness. There's a church, by the way, I read in the New York Times last week that they sold a CD that said moment of silence, 30 minutes of just silence. They gave it out to the church. People started buying them by the thousands because they forces them, be still. I'm going to be still. I'm going to turn off my phone and know, by the way, that I am God that God says, I am God and be just, be still. I was in court one time where I saw, have you ever been to court, criminal court? They bring the, prison, they bring the, the people in jail and they're in their, in their um, orange suits and they go up and they get up before the, the judge. And um, they're first. And anybody with an attorney's first. Some of you attorneys, you, Al, Stacy, you guys know what it's like. To, you would you, 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 the attorneys have the people first and then you have um, public defenders there too. And they're, they're, they're kind of moving you along so your legal advocate can go back to work. Is that how it kind of works? Am I, am I right on that? And then the last ones are the ones that are all alone. And there's this little Spanish speaking lady who walks up to the podium. She gets up in front of the judge and she looks at the judge and the judge looks at her and says, um, what a, do you have any legal representation? She goes, no. She says, no. She's working best English. They bring in a translator right next to her. And the judge looks at her in a very perfunctory manner and says, I'm going to tell you, you have the right for legal representation. Anything you say now could be held against you. And she just says, it's okay. I want to just tell you. I want to, I want to come here. I'm sorry. I want you to do what you want to do to me. And he's, he's, he's gone now from perfunctory legalese uh, to now a sense of reason. Ma'am, please, if you, I can, this court can appoint an attorney for you. I can get you an attorney. Don't say a word. She's standing there completely ignorant. And she goes, no, I don't need an attorney. I can't afford an attorney. I don't need an attorney. I need you to do what you need to do. I was, I'm sorry. I, what I did, he has to stop. He says, don't tell me anything. And he looks at her and now it's human to human. He's leaning there. He goes, understand, don't say anything. I just beg you. He says, if, what you, if you say something, you know, and he's talking to her and she said, it's okay. I'm not scared. I, I trust you. And this man withheld adjudication for her. And I saw this judge interact as if there was no robe, no bailiffs, no stenographers, whatever, nothing. It was the most true interaction. And every one of us, had we known that lady, would have said, what are you thinking? You can't go in there like that. You just can't go in and just... But who are we when it comes to God? We found ourselves in a distant land. 
you and I found ourselves there never knowing we were on our way there. It's the land whose flag would be right and perfect and correct. See, the story we said at the beginning was told about was told to you, right? Everybody was with me on that? I hope this felt like it was to you. You know who it was, who it was about, though? It was about the father. The prodigal son is probably the greatest mistitled story of historical times. It should be the forgiving father, not the prodigal son. It could be the, the wayward, uh, the angry brother, but no, not, it, it's, it's about a forgiving father. So it's told about him. So the Sunday night, you know, Shale had this amazing message last Sunday. If you haven't listened to it, please. I go home, all's well. I'm almost home. I hit my dirt road, and there is a pile of debris. Like, folks, this wasn't, I'm used to people living where I live, people just dumping stuff. You know, so you call the county road department, they come out with this claw, they pick it up, they take it away. Well, it's a Sunday. It's on a Road's going to be pitch black that night. It's an entire trailer load. Jeff is from like me to you. Completely, you, it was still squeezed in, like on the side, just like it teleported from the trailer to the road, just sitting right in the road. And I went from just, this is a, oh, what a beautiful day, to just losing it. I mean, I am angry. I'm, I'm thinking what, you know, this is what I could do with a tire iron to this guy's face. You know, I'm doing what any pastor, and I'm just so angry. I pull in, I'm spitting nails. And I'm just, I'm walking around and I'm like, what the, dude, it's, it's a mess. You guys had something going on last night. I mean, I'm just like, I'm, well, I'm right. I'm justified. I just, and I can't have a bad day because people are coming over. Everybody else, you can go home, lock your door, put the phone away. I am having a bad day expecting 60 people at my home for dinner. And so everybody rolls in. My bad day is still going on. It's still, I mean, I, I, here, I'm, here I am a pastor at a home about to host a dinner for a missionary serving in Utah, Alabama, working with poor families and his loving, what am I, I'm like acting like um, Admiral Nelson at the Battle of Trafalgar. I'm like, light the candles, get the casserole dish going. You get, turn on the lights, clean up. And I'm just sitting there barking orders. And I know people are like, what are you doing? Meanwhile, while I'm going crazy about that load of stuff on the road, not pick on you, but Mike Miller, who lives there, pulls in. He had been working at a wedding that day, pulls in with his truck and trailer, which meant he was really working, setting up tables and chairs and tents, that kind of thing. He pulls in, and I hear my, my truck start. My truck is not even street legal. This thing sounds like a Sherman tank with no ball bearings. And I hear it. And in my mind, I'm like, what's he doing, you know? And he goes out and, without saying a word, parks and for an hour picks up every branch in the road, brings it back. And I said to him at night, I said, you, you go out and pick that stuff up? He said, yeah, I didn't want anybody to run into it, you know? And I was like, really? He, I mean, he, said, he said, I put it in a burn pile. He didn't come in bragging about it. You know, this took me from, by the way, feeling angry earlier 
to about feeling like I needed to resign as a pastor. <laughs> because I'm thinking, I have nothing. Who am I? And so I meet with my accountability partner Tuesday morning. We have one hour. We meet, I mean, it's one hour all the way to one hour. We don't, and it's just, I spill my guts. And I can tell him anything. And he comes over and I tell him, I'm like, man, what is it with me that I missed that moment? Why can't I be the example? Why can't I pull in it? One day over my coffin somewhere, you'll be like, I'll never forget the time what Jake did. And Jake went out and picked up this debris. No, I was the guy, you know, spitting nails on my porch. Why can't I be that example? And I'm like, why is it? Why was that? You know, that's godliness that does what Michael did. And here I was in the flesh. And he said something. He said, you know, God doesn't make those kind of things happen. He allows those things to happen for us to see ourselves. He said, your anger at someone is justified. What they did was wrong. It sure is wrong. I don't care how you paint it, it was wrong. But what he said was incredible. He said, uh, how many times right in front of God have you just put a pile right in the midst of his majesty? And all that he ever created me for, and all the dreams he ever gave me, and all the forgiveness that he wanted me to show others, I put a pile down for everyone to see And he said, then what happens when you get up in the morning and you take that same road and everyone else remembered you dumping the pile, but it's gone. That God takes that pile away every day and makes life new. Sometimes that distant land is just beyond the driveway. Sometimes... It's closer than you think. And the beauty of God is to do this, is to draw you back in, to show you he's not what you think he is, to show you he is a God that saves, that restores, that loves, that fixes, that celebrates, that comes alongside. See, you can fix yourself. You can heal yourself to some degree on some things. You can better yourself, you can improve yourself, you can even convince yourself. But you cannot save yourself. And God has saved you and I, not only from our sin, but he saved you and I from ourselves. And how about this, this morning, on December 1st, 2019, what if this morning, just one of you walked out of here with this, being saved from thinking, God, is like you imagine. Hard-nosed. Tired of forgiving. Over you. What if you walked out of your distant land in your mind today and said, God, you are my God. You're a God who's jealous for me. You're a God who comes out and entreats and begs me. You're a God that shouts for joy when I return. You're a God that picks up the debris in my life that I lay down in a road and you remove it so no one sees it. What if you were to walk out of that distant land today? 
I don't know about you, but I'm a lot like that older brother. And while God was so quick to show a younger brother could be forgiven, so can an older brother who's just been ignorant. What a God that we really do serve. That God is alive in Scripture and prayer. His attainability is at any moment you want to open the Bible. At any moment you just close your eyes and remember, just be still. Let him be God. The greatest prayers you could ever utter sometimes, you don't even say a word. And you'll find he's living. And he's there. And he's waiting. Would you pray with me? Jesus, thank you, Father, for who you are. Thank you, Lord, for, um, for those of us in our path who we've lacked clarity or course of determination in so many times. And then, Father, we, we find ourselves discouraged. Lord, we find ourselves in a distant land. Lord, we've, um, some, some can identify with the prodigal son, but most of us, when we hear the story, think of someone else when it comes to the prodigal son. But Father, most of us sometimes see the beauty of who you are as a father. But Lord, let us see that, um, Lord, we're just like the older son. The Father, we too are in a place where um, we need you. The Father, we thank you for the story that didn't end with just the son coming home. Lord, if there be anyone in here who's never received you as their Savior, the one who can save them, Lord, I would pray. God, I would pray that the person that brought them would be the person that would probably be the greatest spiritual influence they'd know and let them have that talk. If they came alone or they don't have anybody to talk to, or they'd like to speak with one of us, just simply pull one of us aside. We'll be the most life-changing prayer and conversation they'll ever have. Father, for those of us in here who've been in a distant land, Lord, thanks for your patience. Thanks for waiting on us. Thanks for running towards us. Thanks for entreating us and pleading with us to hear your love. God, every time we confront your love, we're in awe. We see ourselves less and we see you more. Lord, we love you and we do praise you this day in Jesus' name. Amen.